This is Religion Unplugged, an interview series about the impact of religion in public life and around the world. In this episode, Religion Unplugged is discussing interesting insights on why Gen Zers have a growing disconnect from formal religious groups. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Josh Packard from Springtide Research Institute to discuss the findings on the Institute's new study called The State of Religion and Young People. All right, so today I have with me Dr. Josh Packard, Executive Director of Springtide Research Institute. And the Institute is a nonprofit sociological research institute that maintains a very large database on young people and spirituality in America. You guys are about to release a study about Gen Z and their religious groups called The State of a Religion and Young People. 2021. Yeah, State of Religion and Young People is a study that we put out every fall. Last year, the, the entire sort of organizing framework was around relational authority. And this year, it's about navigating uncertainty. And it's really our, it's where we sum up everything that we've been learning throughout the year uh, with our research with young people. And, and that typically includes about 10,000 survey responses from 13 to 25 year olds. And then anywhere from, you know, 50 to 200 interviews, depending on the projects we've been doing throughout the year. And the questions that we've gotten. So it's a lot of data. <laughs> We're trying to wade through and make sense of it all. In 2021, it just seemed like, I mean, the, the dominant theme that we kept hearing about in all of that and through our advisory boards and the young people that we come into contact with um, in all these sort of informal capacities, it's, uh, it was just about all about like, how do we get through this? I'm not sure what the next step is. And, you know, one of the really weird things I think about being in that group and that 13 to 25 year old group that we study is that navigating uncertainty is like a hallmark. It's what, it, it's what it is to be young. It's what it was to be young in 1994 and 1974 and 1954. And, you know, you get to 2021 and it's like, yeah, sure. Like I know that uncertainty is a part of my life and that's part of growing up is like, you know, the choices that you make when you're dealing with those kinds of uncertainty. But now you couple all of that normal uncertainty with a pandemic. We just saw young people really trying to figure out not only as like, I'm at 43 trying to figure out what to do during the <laughs> pandemic. Okay. They're trying to figure out like how much of this uncertainty that I feel is normal part of being 19 years old, or is this like extra? And like, how much should I be okay with and how much should I be trying to control? And it just seemed like, but Anna, like I've been so um, heartened by like, when I think of floundering, sometimes I think of like this sort of giving up and I, I just haven't yeah. seen that from young people. Like there's so much okay. resilience and, and like a desire to find their way through it. And, and I think that really comes through in the study too, where it's like, we're going to figure out what the best possible solution is here that we can come up with. It's just been, it's been a really struggling, I mean, a really challenging, you know, year and a half, two years for young people. I can definitely attest to that. It's really difficult to, uh, stereotype and um, and sort of group together an entire generation once you start to understand them better. And so that's a, that's a big part of what we we're trying to do. I mean, the fact is that Gen Z is the most, you know, it's the most diverse generation that we've ever had, um, that anybody's ever had. And and so the, in fact, I mean, it's, it's sort of weird. We talk about 13 to 25 year olds a lot more than we talk about Gen Z because there is no Gen Z. Gotcha. I mean, it's, you know, in a way that was has never been as true as people liked to think that it has been, because privileged groups have always obscured, you know, the diversity that was present in in their country or in their society at any given time. It's even less true now to say that there, like Gen Z is X or Gen Z is Y. Um, they just don't fit into that kind of box, and and so it's more. I think it's way more useful to understand the kinds of social disruptions and patterns. Um, 
that that help shape and nuance their lives. That that provides a, a much bigger understanding than to try and um, you know characterize them as dog people or cat people or whatever silly you know box you want to shove them in. Okay, I'm gonna move on to the more questions about the study itself. Um, one of like the main bullet points for this one this year was that Gen Z is impressionable to the decisiveness in our country. In the last year of how we saw, you know, racial injustice in our country and how that kind of led into maybe some of the, the findings about, you know, religion and spirituality. Well, interestingly, I mean, I think we're seeing that uh, the divisiveness isn't, I mean, it's certainly, the internet is a place where lots of things happen. And one of those things that happens online is uh, contributing to the heightened sense of division. But that sense of division is felt by young people throughout the country in a variety of different settings. It's felt in their schools, it's felt in their communities, um, and it certainly is felt and they're aware of it online. At the same time, online is uh, a place of exploration, of comfort, of identity creation. Uh, it's, it's, where they, it's where young people are turn, turning to their peers to help them maybe even sometimes ask questions they would be afraid to ask in real life in front of somebody, um, you know, because it's, those are, those, those um, interactions can be maybe less controllable. Yeah. The, uh, and so what we found is like young people really trying to uh, a very, not all the time. I don't mean to give the impression that like everything people are doing on TikTok is like dealing with some deepest <laughs> questions that people ask on like sometimes it's <laughs> challenges and dances. I mean, a lot of times that's what it is. Right. Um, yeah. And those things are awesome too. And that's great. Uh, but but sometimes it looks a lot like uh, young people turning to other people that they know who are people of faith to find out like what is worthy and valid out of that tradition that mm -hmm. might be able to help me make sense of and understand um, this this moment that I'm occupying and what I can do about it. And and this the, you know we understand that very clearly at Springtide is like this this communal this communal searching for transcendence. Um, just because it doesn't happen uh, you know in, in a in a synagogue on a Friday night or in pews on a Sunday morning doesn't mean that that isn't essentially religious work. Uh, it's just not institutionally driven religious work. And young people told us I, I was in fact I was giving a presentation one time and this young person came up to me afterwards and said, you know, when 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 adults don't uh, take seriously what we're doing online, they basically disqualify themselves from the conversation. Like okay. we just can't, you know, what, what we do online is not um, sufficient. Like it's not enough for life, but it is essential um, yeah. to what we're doing. And I, I just thought that was such a lovely way of, of putting it, that, that it's like they disqualify, when adults don't take us seriously online, they disqualify themselves from the conversation in our lives. So, you know, when adults are just dismissive of like, oh, that's just silliness going on, or, you know, you're just communicating, you're just talking with your friends all the time. Like you, you really miss out on a way to understand the sort of tools that are available for young people to help them navigate uncertain times, make sense of the world, ask big questions. Do you think the big issue with Gen Z kind of leading religious institutions or in the traditional sense um, uh, is because of trust and they feel like they can't trust people, um, trust religious leaders. Yeah, that's been, um, that's one of those big social trends that, that generations have been responding to. So trust in social institutions and in, and in leaders of, of those institutions has been declining now for 50 years. Um, what's unique about Gen Z is that now we've got, uh, for the first time, a, a generation 
of young people who are being raised by parents who didn't trust those institutions and so who right. are then disengaged from them. So for example, like when I give presentations to religious leaders, a lot of times I'll ask me like, how can we get young people back to church? And I was like, they're not, like they, they didn't leave you, their parents left you. Like they're not, there's no church for them to come back to because they weren't there in the first place. Um, and in some ways that's, you know, I think if you're a religious leader, that's actually a really good thing because, you know, it means that they're not like upset or or, or like angry, right? Often young people just nothing you. Um, and, and if anything, they, you know, they sort of have this implicit distrust of you, not because of your religiosity or because of your role in a religious institution, but because they just inherently now don't trust institutions to have their best interest in mind generally. And there's really solid data from a variety of places. I mean, Springtide, you know, we go down to 13 years old. Most research institutes go down to 18. We all show the same trend, um, whether it's Pew or us or Gallup. Um, you know, we're all PRI. It's the decline of institutional trust is across the board and has only accelerated in the last couple of decades. And I, that that is just the that is the social culture that young people are being raised in, and, that, and it influences everything they do. Yeah, definitely. And even with the pandemic, and we couldn't physically be there anymore. You know, I stopped going. Well, I, I had some, you know, personal things that I had to relearn and kind of deconstruct, but then the pandemic hit and then I was like, well, I'm really not going back um, mm. and I don't want to join online. So what ways have, you know, the pandemic affected those numbers or your findings even more? This is a good question. And um, the we surveyed young people right in the first weeks of the pandemic. So that would have been March of 20, you know, early April, late March of 2020. And then we surveyed them again this year, asking a lot of the same questions one year into it. And what we found is like a, a lot of uh, rates of religiosity had mostly, or belief uh, rather, had held steady over the pandemic for most young people. And, and they had tried a lot of new things. Um, so people trying new religious practices, trying church online, um, religious services online, but that mostly those things hadn't really seemed to stick. Um, and, and, and I think part of that is because religious leaders have done, you know, in our, in our survey, just 10% of young people said that a religious leader had reached out to them personally in the last year. And, you know, so at this moment, at this exact moment when young people are looking around, trying to find guidance and turning to all kinds of religious rituals and traditions, I mean, everything from tarot card reading to prayer, to rosaries, to crystals, like, like Shabbat dinners and all kinds of things that are, you know, inherent maybe in their family traditions. They're, they're, they were really trying a whole bunch of stuff, but they were having to do it at this, at this moment when they really could have used some people who were experts in how to do those things. And mm -hmm. those people just weren't reaching out at, successfully to bridge that gap. And I, I'm not, that is not really, I, I don't mean that to sound like super blamey. I'm just saying that's the reality. The reality yeah. is only 10% of young people had a religious leader reach out to them. And, and so at the, at a moment when they really could have used those experts and guides, they just weren't able to connect with them. Does that worry you about, about like the future and, you know, prosperity of said religious institutions, like are in the next couple, you know, years, will we see just very empty churches or? Well, certainly, I mean, I don't think it bodes well for the, for the uh, sort of what I would call the attendance crisis in institutional um, uh, churches, mostly Christian churches, but also to a certain extent, mosques and synagogues as well. 
you know, that's been going on for years. And I, I don't think we don't see anything that has happened over the last year that is going to necessarily change that trend. But at springtime, I, I worry isn't the, isn't the right word. I mean, so for us, you know, the position we would take is that a young person's religious life should be attended to and well-considered. And even if that uh, attendance and consideration ultimately leads to a position where young people, a young person says like, I don't believe in anything, um, or if it leads to one of deep faith commitment to a particular tradition, what we find is a lot more flourishing among young people who have gone through that process with trusted adults by their side, helping them to navigate those questions. And then of course, keeping in mind that, you know, we're talking about 15, 16 and 17 year olds and the person, you know, that you're dating at 15 is probably not who you're going to be married to. And the major that you choose when you go to college is probably not the one you're going to graduate with. Um, you know, the hallmark of youth is change. And so even faith commitments made at 15, 16, 17 are not likely to be the faith that young people have at 25, 26, 27. Um, you know, my faith at 14 isn't what I have as I come up to my 44th birthday. Like it's, it's different. And so it's a, we get, we don't get concerned about any particular position that a young person takes. It's the lack of consideration that, that gets us worried. And I, I do think that there's some, there's some reason to be concerned there. So as, as, as parents, which are still the single most important influence on a young person's faith life as parents, when parents sort of lose the, the larger vocabulary of faith or the connections to those institutions, I think that it's, it's understandable to be concerned that they might lose the ability then to guide uh, their own children through those, um, through those conversations uh, like they maybe once, I wouldn't say felt comfortable, but at least were willing to do. And now I, I wonder if those things don't just disappear. I mean, families, again, they are the single biggest point of influence on a young person's values and religious systems, et cetera. But also, like I say that, if you hear any hesitation in my voice, it's because I recognize it. Like, you know, if, you, if you're paying attention at all, like families never were what we often think of them as, you know, yeah. and this dominant sort of like, you know, dad is working outside of the house, mom is working inside of the house, and there's, you know, two kids and everything's intact. That, that has never been the reality as much as people like to imagine that it was. The family systems that young people are growing up with now are incredibly diverse and uh, reflect their diverse lived realities. And, and yeah. families are still really influential. The it's just that the contours of that influence look different and we need to be aware of that. Like they vary by cultural and ethnic tradition. They vary by racial experience in this country. They vary by economic experience in this country. And, you know, not, not every it's, you know, influence is not influence is not influence from one family to the next, even if whoever's living in the household with that young person is the, I mean, that's the first point of contact with faith generally. Can you describe the difference between religion and spirituality? Yeah, so religion often refers to those practices that are driven through institutions. Um, so some sort of formalized, you know, systemic or systematic rather, um, bundled up set of practices that, that speaks to an entire religious system. Spirituality, uh, I mean, these are, these are like, this is a combination of academic and colloquial or, or common understandings. I mean, this is how young people, we struggle with this a lot because young people use these words often interchangeably. Yeah, um, and for sure. So it's a, you know, we're, we're in the interviews, especially, we're really trying to drill down. And in the survey questions, we're trying to be very specific uh, or avoid those terms when we can. Spirituality is, is something that young people feel happens outside of formal settings. Um, it, it, to the extent that it happens inside of formal settings, it's almost like 
spirituality is that aspect that bypasses them. So if we're talking about a young person like in, in a church on a Sunday morning praying, um, every prayer is not an act of spirituality, but those prayers that lead to a direct connection with the divine will often be characterized as spiritual or spiritual or spiritual experiences rather. So it's almost, you know, like when we're able to bypass the institution or mm-hmm. avoid it entirely, but still connect with something that we would consider to be transcendent, um, those are usually what get lumped for young people into this broad category of spirituality. Academics can get carried away with what the technical definitions of something are, but if they don't match up with people's lived experiences, I'm not sure how good those definitions are. Okay. Uh, no. But that's... that being said, like, you know, we're really interested in sort of where this institutional and extra institutional practices, you know, come into combinate, you know, come, come into contact with one another, like how they inform each other or how they don't, um, where one replaces the other. Young people find, uh, you know, a high degree of connection with God or the transcendent or the divine in nature, um, more so than, 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 off, than a lot of institutional settings that are explicitly designed to, to help you connect you know, like you know, hundreds or thousands of years of, of history and tradition and practices have been put into place in this one specific moment to help you connect with God. And young people will tell us like, oh, a walk in the forest does that better. Um, that's fascinating. And that is, uh, I think, yeah. speaks, you know, like the, the trees can't let you down. And I wonder <laughs> if that's part of this whole trust story. You know what I mean? I don't know how much it is is a trend or people are are searching for this. And I think reading a report will kind of kind of solidify like my personal wonderings about this. But I find that people were creating their own religion, you know, ABC with with the tarot cards and with the crystals and they're adding which all derive from, you know, other actual religions, um, but taking all these little different practices or spiritual rituals and then kind of creating their own religion that worked for them uh what do you think is yeah what do you think is the downside and you know the positive from that well i i don't think any engage any time a 14 or 15 year old is is engaging with religious traditions and systems and you know in a real serious way i'm not sure there can be a downside we have to again, uh, you know, I'll reemphasize they're 14. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they're 17 years old. If like I have an 11 year old, if my 11 year old is asking any question at all about God, I'm thrilled, right? Yeah. Like it's, because it's the beginning um, at that age, especially at the, at the lower end of, of that age bracket. I mean, that's the beginning of real serious religious formation, um, spiritual formation, you know, addressing what it means to be human. And, and that's always a good sign. Now, if you're the kind of person that gets really hung up on making sure that young people give you the right answers to a test question all the time, it's, it's going to terrify you. Like, this is not going to be, a, you're not going to like this one bit. Um, but I think we've been kidding ourselves for a long time. When we get those right answers from those quote unquote right answers from young people, um, we can often fool ourselves into thinking that A, this is what they will always and forever believe, which we've already covered is not true. Um, or B, that they're somehow actually telling us the truth. And they may be telling you the truth at that moment. They may just be telling you what they know you want to hear. And so what we say at Springtime a lot is like, I think the, the, what comes through from this data pretty clearly is the goal of religious leaders, trusted adults, parents, teachers, et cetera, right now, for young people, especially with these big questions, is to stay in the conversation for as long as the young person will have you in that conversation. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that they're always going to have you in that conversation. Like you, at some point, like that, you know, you may have a set of beliefs that is just so divergent from their set of beliefs that that disconnect may be too 
broad and young people are not asking you to compromise those things. I mean, they may want you to change them. Like we all want people who disagree with our core values to, you know, come over to our side, Um, but it doesn't mean that they won't be in conversation with you. And I think, I think adults would be surprised at how long young people will stay in those conversations um, because the longer you're in the conversation with them, the more chance that you have to guide them, influence them, help them mature and grow. Um, you get you get a chance to learn some really wonderful things and ways that young people are asking questions and uh, and, and sort of evolving through these conversations. And it's I mean it's fascinating and it's a um, so I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it concerns me so much. Um, I do get I mean I think that there's there's a little bit of danger that without the right guides in place, this, this notion that like, I can pick up a few things from Islam and a few things from, um, you know, Wicca and a, and a few things yeah. from Christianity, like these are intact religious traditions that have been passed down through centuries, if not millennia. And um, uh, I think that young people should be guided to, uh, you know, engage them as whole systems and, and to understand gotcha. the entire traditions and histories of those things so they can you know, really, truly get with, but these are, look, a, a young person picking up like three of the 10 commandments is not going to doom Judaism yeah. or Christianity. Like it's going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's good. That exploration is going to be fine. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll put it this way. So one of the metaphors that we use a lot to help um, understand this notion of unbundled faith is maybe not so long ago, maybe 30, 40 years ago, for a young person, faith was kind of like showing up at a restaurant and the waiter brings you food and your only point of agency, your only choice there is you can either eat that meal that the waiter brought you or not eat that meal. That's it. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, um, partially because the, you know, the internet came along and um, the world became a little bit more secularized and we got a little bit more diverse, it became more like ordering off of a menu. So, okay, so I can get Christianity or I can be you know Buddhist or I can be Muslim um, but I have to pick one of these things to order. And I think the best way to understand what young people are doing right now is like, they, they, are not, they are not simply choosing to eat or not eat what's brought to them. They are not ordering off of a menu. They're at a dinner party and they're at a dinner party with a bunch of friends and everybody has brought something to eat to that dinner party and they are trying things in really weird combinations that, you know, as if you've ever been to a dinner party, you know, that you can find yourself, you know, having like, like last week I was just, a, I was at a dinner party and, you know, we were eating Peruvian food and quiche and, you know, like that, that was just what people had brought. And so that is what we were eating and along with like a Greek salad and to assemble a meal, a sort of, to, to extend the metaphor here, to assemble a sort of spirituality uh, or a religious system out of those different things is, is both a way of engaging with their peers and learning from them in those, tradi- in those different systems. And it's a way of exploring them and figuring out like, it turns out I don't I don't like Greek salad like I'm not gonna like that doesn't work for me I'm not gonna have any of that um and and so then trying something else and trying things in different combinations and I think that's the better way to understand that it doesn't mean that you know it doesn't mean that they're going to go away and necessarily like this is the this is the religion of Josh and I'm going to take this Mm -hmm. you know you know we're gonna this is going to be the thing that I do but it's a way of doing community and, and religious. And we call it connection in, in this book as opposed to community where communities are often so homogenous. This connection allows them to explore more things. And do you feel like that connection that will drive purpose? Because you, you guys mentioned Gen Z feels exceptionally lonely and purposeless. Yeah. And I would agree, I would agree with that. Um, 
And, but you also mentioned those who do engage with spirituality or also are, or religion are the ones that are flourishing the most. And Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, what could you kind of say to that? Well, Gen Z is uh, the most lonely and isolated generation socially um, with their, and and relationally. I mean, it's, this is true using the standard measure of loneliness called the UCLA Loneliness Index. Um, Cigna was actually the big health conglomerate was one of the first places to document this before the pandemic. And and we picked that up and extended down to 13 years old and found the same thing. Um, I I don't think that Gen Z is purposelessness. Wait, I don't think they lack purpose. That's the right word. Okay. I think that they're in fact really mobilized by particular social issues and- Yes. um, and uh, you know justice concerns and equity environment, concerns. yeah, exactly. Um, and so their sense of purpose often looks and finds and expresses itself in ways that are much different than previous generations that where you know where you did have high institutional trust, and those generations mm-hmm. might have been more inclined to sort of funnel their sense of purpose through a particular institution, whether that was work um, or religion or a vol- you know a, a volunteer association, um, voluntary association that they might have been a member of. Gen Z is not going to do that. They're going to connect with causes and topics and issues. And I think that that's, that's, that only makes sense once you understand that they don't trust those institutions. So why would you funnel your sense of purpose through there? Um, and so to the extent that those institutions then can become tools for helping them to engage with those topics and issues, and especially in a, in a way that is uh, also then bridging the connection between this world and the transcendent, then I think religious institutions and other places have a big role to play in the lives of Gen Z. But when they, you know, to the, to the extent that those institutions want to stand off to the side and say, you know, come here, we have everything you need inside of these four walls, you know, metaphorically speaking, I just, I don't think they're poised to be of much utility to young people. One of the really important things to keep in mind here is that uh, even while institutional connection and, you know, especially attendance uh, is declining, we see young people still express rates of religious and spiritual belief at really high levels. So something like three-fourths of young people um, consider themselves to be religious and another, well, something like 78% say they're spiritual, 73% say they're religious. So again, really high rates of religiosity and spirituality. Um, they're, they're doing a lot of exploration, but you know, you know, you, it's, young people shouldn't be discerning career paths by themselves. They, they shouldn't be trying to navigate romantic relationships by themselves. Like they shouldn't even be you know, we don't leave them alone to navigate their friendship relationships by themselves. We're always, you know, in healthy systems, young people are being guided by trusted adults through all of those and a thousand other things on a daily basis. And um, sometimes I think we get carried away thinking that the lack of attendance means lack of interest. And that's just not true. And, you know, adults who are uh, either working inside or outside of those institutions would, I think, do well to remember that they're in the process of assembling answers to these questions too, and could use guides to do that work with them. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by contributor Anna Carlson. It was edited and produced by Peter Freebie. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of the Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com 
or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.